0: At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email Campbell Reporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose. By reporting with purpose, We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Hello,
1: Campbell Law Reporter listeners. My name is Jenna Nichols, and I'm here today with Bruce McLaughlin. He is the author of He Said, She Said. Now, before becoming an author, was an Army JAG officer, a family man, a doting father. And then his family life crumbled, and he had to switch roles and become the client. And as the client, he would find that even as an attorney, he did not receive adequate representation. And due to this inadequate representation, he found himself behind bars for a lie too many men find themselves fighting during a divorce, abuse charges. Years later, through his knowledge and pure strength, he was able to receive an acquittal and regain control of what life he had left. Bruce is not only here today to tell us his past strength behind bars, but how he uses his experience to aid others today. So thank you, Bruce, for being here today and sharing your story. Could you give the listeners a glimpse of life before the whole world watched your family fall apart?
2: Thank you, Jenna, for that introduction. I can say that I had a pretty good family life with four beautiful, bouncy children. At the time this unfortunate event happened, they were age five, my girls, and my two boys older. One was seven and one was nine. And we lived in an idyllic setting, if you will, in Loudoun County, not too far from the elementary school where my kids started in school. My two boys were in that school. My girls were getting prepared to go. It was a you know father knows best kind of, of lifestyle where we were living fairly well. My uh, problems developed when I had to travel as a consultant every week out of the house and was not able to spend the time that my wife needed for me to help her with her postpartum depression that she suffered. And it caused her to almost be continually bedridden. And I had to hire a nanny to come in and help with the children. Anyway, we lived a a pretty good life, despite what happened in this case.
1: Now, you had mentioned the nannies, which they actually show up in your book as you go through them. How would you say their influence on your children's life and how much they interacted with you in your family? Um,
2: we had uh, initially a South African friend's daughter come from that part of the world to help Robin with the birth of the children post-birth because twin girls are are very hard to care for. Twin anybody's (laughs) are hard because you've got two diapers and you've got two mouths and you have two colds. And so she started, she was probably closer to our family than the two Swedish nannies that we hired off of a website were. But the nannies were very much part of our family And they were asked by prosecutors in this case subsequently, did they notice anything that was out of the ordinary with respect to the way the father, I, was, who was charged, as you know, in this sordid case with falsely sexually abusing all four of my children. Was there anything out of the ordinary that caused them to question whether or not Bruce was abusing his children? I was abusing the children. And the answer was no. There was nothing that they ever saw, no blood, no signs from the children that they were afraid of their father, no visual signs that anything was askew. I should say the prosecutors learned of this information and then did not tell us that this was exculpatory information. In fact, allowed these nannies to, the one nanny in particular, to travel back to Sweden. And out of the court's jurisdictions. We, we couldn't even use her as a witness. I tried to yeah. get her to come back, but her parents said, no, she didn't want to be involved. She would have been a strategic witness to my innocence. And unfortunately, she was not able to, to attend the trial.
1: Now it has to be frustrating, especially as an attorney who knows how important witnesses are to. Have a witness who is so critical to your case flip through your fingers. And I want to go back to when you actually had to switch roles from being an attorney who was the powerhouse of the family working four jobs and then had to switch on a dime and find legal representation for yourself.
2: Well, I was put in jail awaiting trial and so I wasn't able to assist my my lawyers and that was one of the setbacks that I had in not being able to adequately prepare this case had I been able to be out at the time the transcripts originally in this case the first interviews with the children by law enforcement a junior investigator had no experience interviewing children and asked them suggested leading questions nonetheless the children denied Most of these allegations until a note was shown to each of the children, a crib note that the mother had drafted, despite what the Child Protective Services had told her not to do. And in fact, she would show those documents to the children and encourage them to say things from those crib notes that she had rehearsed with the children to say that was simply not true. I would have been able to find those notes had I been able to be free at the time and gone through all the stack of discovery in the case, the prosecutors had buried two of the four notes in the the discovery stack, which was probably 10 feet high. And my lawyers didn't have time to do that. And those notes were exculpatory. Had they been available in the first trial, we would have seen that not only did the notes contradict what the children were saying now as to what happened, but that those notes were written by the mother for the children to say as crib notes. And they're referred to in the transcripts of the first recorded and only recorded testimony with children said about what happened to them by a junior police officer. And had my lawyers really read the transcripts thoroughly, they would have seen references to the notes and asked for those notes in particular. They didn't do that either. Those two pieces of evidence, and I should say the transcripts, were not evaluated independently by my lawyers. They should have gotten the original recordings and asked for those, and then made sure that the recorded testimony of the children was accurate. And come to find out in the second trial, my lawyer did the right thing and got the recordings, recorded the testimony in deference to the original transcriptions that were written by a police secretary who had a vested interest to bring you know people to justice who were charged and the transcript showed material changes made by the police secretary to what was actually stated by the children in their interviews for instance my second son was asked the question, well, did your dad penetrate your private area? And he would say nothing. It was he was silent. And then the police officer, Detective Christy Lay was her name, said, yes, okay, let me ask this question. Well, the yes, okay, was translated as if Nick had said that to the question before it, as opposed to what Detective Lay said in transitioning from no response to that question to another question to make me look like I was, in fact, implicated by my son when I had not been. And hence, this was exculpatory information as well in the second trial, where a judge determined that I should get a second trial because I was denied my constitutional right to a fair trial and to having a reasonably competent defense lawyers represent me on the first trial. We call that a Sixth Amendment violation of, you know, your right to have a valid defense, to have defense lawyers not commit malpractice, not to be ineffectively assisting their defendant.
1: Now, it was really surprising for me as I was reading your book, to see that you were having issues with representation because you didn't just get any attorney. You thought you were getting the best attorney. So how does that feel as the client to know what proper representation should be and not receive it?
2: Well, it was a bit convoluted how I got these first set of attorneys. I was originally recommended to another attorney and I asked that attorney. If he would represent me, and he said, "Look, he had too much work at the time to do, and he could not represent me." I wish he had decided to represent me because he was the lawyer who represented me on the second trial, and I was acquitted. Uh, the first lawyers were given to me because a civil lawyer had seen a good article about this one fella in legal publications, and so I contacted him, and he came, and he interviewed with me and I thought he would be a good bet for, for an attorney. I did not know this guy and I was not practicing law at the time. Remember, at the time I was a consultant. So I was out of the court area and was out of uh, knowledge of who the good lawyers were. So I was, a, I was not really a lawyer who knew all the lawyers. I was a lawyer who was a consultant. And this guy who was recommended to me turned out to be an alcoholic. He'd come to court with alcohol in his breath. He had a handkerchief in his back pocket that he would blow his nose into before a judge would show up on the bench. He was just downright incompetent. And he recommended me to another guy who we had one case with, the Child Protective Services, who I hired. He ended up being even worse. He had very little criminal experience. And he was someone who was preoccupied on other matters out of the District of Columbia and couldn't really give much attention to this case. And so with those two ineffective counselors representing me and me being in jail, I was caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place and and suffered poor representation. On the second go-round, I did get the, the lawyer who I originally asked, and he did agree to handle the case for me and did a very, very good job. His name is Alex LeBay.
1: I want to go down the path of how you became your best advocate behind bars. In your book, you mentioned about calling uh, the Swiss nannies. And that's where I really felt like I was seeing more of you getting involved in your case more actively, like you were getting frustrated. That's what I was getting from your book. Like, I was getting frustrated with you.
2: Look, everybody who is charged with a crime should help their lawyers and just get into it and don't leave any stone unturned because you're your best advocate. It may not be appropriate that you represent yourself because the old adage is pretty much true. If you represent yourself, you have a fool for a client. And the reason for that is because. Oftentimes, when you're representing yourself, you're too emotionally invested in a case to really have objectivity and to speak objectively to a judge and to cross-examine people such as my ex-wife and so forth. And so I didn't feel like I could represent myself, certainly. But by the same token, you have to assist your lawyers that you do get. And unfortunately, I got put in jail before trial. And so I wasn't able to assist my lawyers as much as I would have liked to have. So the word to the wise is get involved in helping your lawyers to do the very best job that they can read over all the material, ask to see it. Because had I been able to do that, I would have been able to find those notes and I would have been able to figure out that the transcripts were doctored. So that's the word to the wise there.
1: How do you use your experience with the case and what you felt behind bars to shape what you do now?
2: Well, Jenna, I could say that I'm a little bit more humble. I'm a little bit more wise about jumping to conclusions and being upset or angry over things that don't go your way. We live in a world that particularly in these COVID-ridden times, they don't always go our way. In fact, sometimes they go against us. So patience and long-suffering and perseverance are valuable gifts that I have been given as a result of this unfortunate experience.
1: You wrote this book, He Said, She Said. What drove you to write such a exposing book? And the reason I use exposing is it's, Everything that you don't want to mention about the hardship of marriage, how you felt hearing the reports of what the media wrote about you, and you made it so public.
2: Well, thank you for asking that question, because uh, this is the reason why I wrote the book, why I'm going on a public speaking circuit, why eventually I would like to get a connection to a filmmaking company, to tell the story. And that is, I don't want other people to be falsely accused of abuse of their own children like I was. Educating the public, judges, juries, other lawyers is important to me because the fact of the matter is, is that the odds say that 80% of sexual allegations in divorce cases are false. 80% of what children say in a divorce case are typically persuaded to and instilled in their memory or tried to be instilled in their memory by another parent or a power adult like a police officer. And children of a nubile age, five, six, seven eight, even nine, can be persuaded to uh, say certain things that are just not true. And yet they come to see them as true because, as in my ex-wife's case, she tried uh, over a thousand times, my second son said, to talk to him about these issues, telling him over and over again what happened when she didn't observe anything. But her motivation was to take the children to her native New Zealand and out of the court's jurisdiction and punish me for not being an effective husband to her. On the other hand, you know, children oftentimes, most members of the public see, and, and it's true, tell the truth. Because children don't have that built-in detector that questions and oftentimes perverts the truth. When we become so educated as we think we are, children are very honest and open. And in a non divorce type setting, 80% of what the children typically say are true. So, in other words, I'm trying to help educate the public about divorce cases or custody cases in particular. And if a jury or a judge or the Lawyers see that this is a divorce case, they have to automatically have a red flag go up that somebody might be trying to influence children to say certain things that are not true and instill in them memory that is suggested memory that never happened. I'm trying to educate the public because I don't want people to have to spend four years and two months behind jail bars, or even now, where people without the resources, oftentimes people of color, are sitting in jail because they didn't have the ability that I had to get a second trial, let alone a first trial that, where they had a fair representation. So the thought here is, I don't want this to happen to somebody else. And then one of the reasons why I'm practicing law even today in the very jurisdiction that sentenced me and put me away for those number of years and then gave me a retrial and allowed me to have a second trial acquittal and then again get my bar license back and practice law, the very reason I'm doing that is to try and give back to the community effective and passionate representation that I didn't get.
1: What would you say leading with purpose means to you?
2: Well, I hear that your, your kids, that you have a, a relationship with this podcast, are given that question and that everybody gives a different answer oftentimes to it. I would say being purposeful means you have to set your mind to goals. You have to set out where you want to go. And sometimes it helps to write it out. That's why I wrote a book on the subject, fashioned by notes that I took in jail for four years. And then parlayed into a a, a book that is now called He Said, She Said, and Then He Went to Jail, available on Amazon, by the way, if you want to read it. And then try to follow your goals by carrying them out, not forgetting them. My goal in this writing of the book, as I said, is to try and educate the public about sexual allegations and divorce, said cases particular type of abuse allegation cases that oftentimes are false. And to help those who are wrongfully charged and incarcerated to get the proper representation and expert testimony they need to get the acquittal or get a case dropped that they need to have done in these kinds of cases.
1: Well, Bruce, thank you for your time. And again, if you guys want to check out his book, it's a great read. I will include a link to Amazon to this direct book in the bio of this episode. So thank you again, Bruce.
2: Thank you, Jenna. And keep up the good work there at Campbell Law School. Be the advocate, a purposeful advocate that you set your goals to be.
0: Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7am for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.